just when we think we are really living, totally unexpected, unforeseen tragedy explodes. Is there something we can live for that no oil spill, hurricane, tornado, accident, or disease can steal from us? As we turn with our study leader, Dave Wilson, to 1 Thessalonians 2.17, the Apostle Paul tells us what really makes him live. Let's find out if his life purpose remains intact when hard times destroy. Mary and I were watching the ABC News, probably like a lot of you do, and maybe some of the other networks. They took us right down to the epicenter of the crisis in the Gulf. I'll never forget, the picture was the reporter was down right on the Gulf Coast. He got down and reached into the sand. It was white sand, and as he was reaching, there were tar balls. And we've all been at the Gulf long before the Gulf spill, and there were tar balls at times where we were swimming, right? But what struck me as he dug down about a foot, there was a layer of oil. And it just showed the devastation. And then they went to stories. For some that it's too late, I share with you about a fellow named William Cruz that was 55. They showed a picture of his boat. And ordinarily, every single day, he would be on his yacht, take a group of people fishing. I did that with Josh, my little boy. And I've gone out with some of you. We've gone on those yachts and gone fishing for red snapper and for anything else you might catch. It's awesome to fish in the ocean because you never know what you're going to get. And, and, and this boat captain just lived for that, 55 years of age. When everything crashed and nobody was signing up to go fishing, he wanted to get with BP and use his yacht at least every day. He could go out and do something to help fight this enemy that was taking away all of his life. And he got all upset because of bureaucracy. You've heard the story. People try and everything gets butched up, which often happens. And he was just frustrated because he saw his whole way of life collapsing. It's too late for him. He went into his garage and he took his life. After they told that story about William Cruz, they went on and they took the camera and they swept this big marina. This is on the Gulf. And as they spanned this beautiful marina with just hundreds of slips, every one of them were empty. And this dear fellow described how he's, he was a man probably in his 40s. He said, this was my dream. All of my life, I wanted to have a marina. And now I've had it. And I was blowing and going and everything was successful. And then he broke down. He said, this was my dream. And it was gone. What the gulf forces us to face is that you can be blowing and going in your life and you have the fulfillment. Your dream has come true. And then right when your dream happens, it's snatched away from you. Anybody ever experienced that? In Texas, it can be tornadoes. You get your house just exactly right and then boom, it's blown away. It's leveled. It can be hurricanes, like now we're worried about another hurricane coming in. But you know, as I talk to some of you, as my brothers and sisters, some of you had the perfect job, and you were moving, blowing, and going in your career, and suddenly your job is gone. You just walked into work, and they said, we love you, you've done a great job, you've done everything we've ever asked you to do, but we don't have the funds, and so you lost your job. And suddenly, your life is in crisis. That's what happens. When we go through life, Suddenly, big storms come in, and the oil spill, there was just an explosion. In seconds, people died, and then the oil gushes forth, and your whole way of life, it's totally gone. 
That's the way life is. We need to really care about that. As believers, we need to really be involved in doing all that we can to help to be good stewards of God's creation. But I also want you to realize that one of the realities of life as we know it right now is right when you feel your big dreams have come true, they'll evaporate. And what I want to talk about this morning is how do you answer the question, I'm really living? This boat captain, if I would have asked him, William Cruz, what does it mean for you to really live? He says, it's to be out in the Gulf with my boat filled with fishermen. If I would have asked that marine operator, what does it mean for you to really live? He would have said, it's to see all those slips full and to be pumping diesel fuel and be able to help uh, sailing vessels get out there and sailboats and all that. Man, that was my dream, to enjoy the sun. What's your dream? Every one of you, why don't you ask yourself right now, how do you answer the question, this is really living? And what we're going to do in the next few minutes, the Apostle Paul is going to talk to us about what it means for him to really live. And what he does is he's writing a letter to the Thessalonians, and if you look at chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 13. In this whole section, he hasn't even gotten to what he really wants to talk to the Thessalonians about, but as he shares his life and his heart, he talks to us about what it means for him to really live. And he begins by saying that he, he gives us an understanding that only the Lord God can really tell us this is really living. Would you agree with that? In other words, you have a lot of friends that say, this is really living. You know, you have, you have family members. You can have a mom and dad that's telling a young person, this is what it means to really live. And then you can have a young person that having their peers say, this is what it means to really live. The Apostle Paul is going to, the first thing he's going to tell us is, we need to have a voice from God. So whatever I talk to you about today, don't listen to me. I want to try to capture you up in the Apostle Paul's idea that the Lord God of heaven actually speaks. And one thing I want you to be alert to is that you live in a culture where a lot of people don't believe that God ever speaks. They don't believe that God really communicates, that everything is just human language. If you're a young person today, if you go to university, uh, you're going to hear a ton of thought that everyone just has different opinions, and you need to decide for yourself. You need to find the answers for yourself. That is a very powerful, pervasive atmosphere. Everything is human talk. And that's where it comes, like if I tell you, well, I really believe God has spoken, and I really believe that God has said this is the way it really is, I'm automatically labeled as a bigot. Because as soon as I say that God has spoken, it means I've really heard the truth. And what I want you to wrestle with is that if you're going to follow the Lord Jesus and you're going to listen to his word, one of the dominant assumptions is that God speaks. And the Apostle Paul talks about that to the Thessalonians. Look at verse 13. It says, we also thank God continually. Paul has this immediate personal relationship. And with the Thessalonians, they tell them, you received not a human word, but a divine word. Have we received a human word or have we received a divine word? Look what he says. He says, we also thank God continually because when you've received God's word, not a human word, not just a pastor's word, not just a religious, not just a DTA, Dallas Seminary word, not just a Roman Catholic word from the Pope, whatever background you're from, I want you to think really hard. The Apostle Paul is saying, you received, the Apostle is saying, when I spoke to you, it was God's word that you heard. 
which you heard from us and you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea. He's telling them about what happened where he was raised, where he had his early education, over in Judea, which would be present-day Israel and the Palestinian areas. He says, you became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in the Messiah, the word Christ means the Messiah, Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen. The Thessalonians are experiencing rejection. They're losing their jobs. They're losing contracts. They're being thrown out of trade guilds. They're being accused of being against the Roman Empire, according to the the book of Acts, chapter 17. You're being disloyal to the Roman government, and you're worshiping another king other than Caesar, and we're going to kill you for this. Eventually, that's what happened in the first century. You've got believers that believe in Jesus saying he's the king of kings. They lose their lives for that. That's all in the background. That's beginning to happen in Thessalonica. In the city... Those that rule the Jewish synagogue, when Paul preached the gospel to them, they threw him out of the synagogue and said, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, not all of them did that. There were a substantial number of Jews in the synagogue that agreed with Paul. So it's very important if you understand historically that when Paul went to Thessalonica, some of the Jews said, yes, Paul, you're right. You proved to us from our scripture that the Messiah would suffer and he would die and he would rise again. And we accept him. They went out, and then they opened the door for Gentiles like most of us, non-Jewish people, to hear the gospel as well. And many of them responded. The religious leaders, the Jewish people in charge of the synagogue, were jealous over this people movement taking place in Thessalonica. And they got a riot. They went down and got a bunch of hoodlums, and they caused a riot And they grabbed one of the Christians of Thessalonica named Jason, and they brought him before the magistrates. And Paul had to leave the next morning, so he was snatched away from them. That's the concrete reality of the suffering. Some of you, for example, Yetta that was just up here, when she came to know Jesus as her Messiah, as the Savior, as the one who died for her, her mom and dad, because they were from an Islamic background, said, you're no longer my daughter. So you've got a sister in Christ right here in your midst that knows what it is to be really rejected. Some of you have faced more subtle forms of rejection. Some of you were, you know, on the football team, and you were the life of the party, and you were the ones that made it down. You used to have to go all the way to Rigor Springs and have your big brother, you know, get the six-pack, and you got smashed after the football game. And suddenly you came to know Jesus, and you're not doing that anymore, and you're living a different kind of a life. And some of your buddies on the team rejected you. Some of you were cheerleaders, and you were the life of the party, and you were doing a lot of things that you shouldn't do. You come to know Jesus, and suddenly you're not part of the group. How many of you have ever had a change in your life, and suddenly the group that you used to be a part of doesn't like you anymore? That's hard, isn't it? If you're really going to follow Christ, I need to be honest with you. There's a good possibility that you're going to face rejection. You're going to face tribulation. You're going to have those who want to get you. Rather than that being a cause for you to turn away from Christ, that is an affirmation that God's Spirit is really working inside of you. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying to the Thessalonians, you can rejoice because just like 
the believers that came to know Jesus when the earthly Jesus, before he died and rose again, when he was in Israel, he was rejected by his people. They even took his life. And what he's saying is you become one of his followers because you too are experiencing that same kind of rejection and persecution. He says they're the ones, the Jews in Israel are the ones who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They displease God and they are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, if I was a regular teacher this morning, I would now tell you this is the epitome of anti-Semiticism. Paul is saying that the Jews crucified Jesus and they're bad people. And now God's wrath has come upon them. And the result of that kind of bigoted thinking caused Christians, when they got power, to use their power to start to kill Jews. And that led through the centuries to the Spanish Inquisition, where in Spain, if you were Jewish, they either forced you to recant and become a Christian to turn or to convert, or they killed you. They burned you in the name of Christianity. And then that led to the pogroms in Russia, and it led to the Lutheran, quote, quote, Lutheran, he wasn't really Lutheran, Hitler. Luther spoke against the Jews, which he did. Hitler picked up on, like, the George Washington of Germany, and six million Jews were killed. So as I speak to you this morning, I want you to know that that's the history. As you hear Paul's words, if you're in a college classroom, I can make it sound to a young student, what you were taught in Sunday school is the ultimate source of all evil. It's what leads to bigotry. You need to forget what you learned about Jesus because he produces exclusivism and he produces hatred against people. What you need to do is you need to understand that nobody really has the truth. Nobody knows what's really happening. We all need to just lovingly realize that everything is relative. That's the argument. You hear that all the time. In fact, a lot of you just live that way. You don't even realize that you're being exposed to that. And you're experiencing that. As believers, it's real important for us to live with the facts. The fact is that Jesus was crucified because Caiaphas said, my temple and my nation is more important than the life of an innocent man. And I don't care if he does miracles. I don't even care if he raised the dead. If we don't kill him, then our temple is going to be taken down by the Romans and Israel is going to end as a nation. And so for expediency's sake, we need to kill them. That's what the Gospel of John argues. That really did happen. I also want you to know that it wasn't ethnic Jews. For example, in this passage that I'm teaching you, Paul is what? He's Jewish. So Paul is not speaking as a Gentile trying to generate anti-Jewish thinking. He's telling you the honest truth. In Paul's ministry, in every city where he went, there were religious leaders, most of the time they were Jewish, that tried to attack what the Apostle Paul was doing and try to keep people from coming to know Jesus. And Paul isn't saying, let's kill them. He isn't saying, let's get our swords and wipe them out. What he's saying is that God's judgment is coming. 
And it has come. When Paul wrote, and when he wrote this book in about 51, there were major movements of nationalism in Israel, and Jewish zealot groups were rising up, and the Romans would attack. It explodes in 67 AD, and you can read all about it in Josephus on the wars. Josephus was a Jewish general that surrendered to the Romans, and he writes explaining all about the Jewish wars. What Paul is writing really did happen. In Jesus' ministry, he says, because you rejected the Messiah, you are going to lose your temple, and you're going to be scattered everywhere. And you know what happened in 70 AD? That happened. Does that mean that we're better than the Jews? No, because in my own heart, I do the same thing. So do you. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that he's in touch with God. God is speaking. And what he's saying is when you stand against the gospel, when you try to hinder the free proclamation of God's grace, and you try to keep others from hearing that gospel as well, the Lord God of heaven, because it's really his gospel, is going to deal with you. The Jews in the Old Testament were supposed to be, and this is real important, the Jews in the Old Testament, according to the promise of Abraham, were, were not supposed to be an exclusive little group that was, had their own little culture, that did their own little thing and could care less about the rest of the world. The whole point of being a Jew was to bring blessing to everyone. They were supposed to be the ones that brought Gentiles to worship the true God instead of worshiping idols. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm a true Jew, and I'm fulfilling the promise to Abraham because I'm bringing a blessing. The Messiah has now come. He's not just a Jewish Messiah. He is the king of kings. He is for everyone. So we can't be exclusive. But people fought that. And what I want you to understand, it's very important because we're living a couple thousand years after this happened. I want you to be very well aware that cultural Christianity, when it's threatened, it attacks. And I want to be on the side that I stand strongly against that. And I want to warn you, when we worship nationalism, when we worship our ethnic group and when we feel threatened, the next step is to attack. Is Jesus died and rose again for all men. That's why we care about Albania. It's why we need to care about Africa. We need to be praying, Lord, touch South Africa with the gospel you got to guard against the spirit. I need to guard against the spirit that, that America is the hope of the world. America isn't the hope of the world. This is hard stuff. You need to have a loyalty. The Lord called you to be good citizens. But your ultimate loyalty needs to be to God and to his son and the power of the spirit working within you. And be careful when, you, when I do it and you do it, when you start referring to people, like the way that anti-Semitism is exposed, what happened in my own life, like I was right where Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, I talked about Jewing somebody down right in the Holy Land. How many of you have ever used that expression? Jewing somebody down. What it means is Jews in business are really good business people, and they'll go for the jugular. 
almost every one of you believe that in your heart. That's hatred. That's wrong. It's a generalization. And you know what I had to do? Right in the middle of my talk, I had to stop, and I looked at our Jewish guy that I've been trying to reach for Jesus, and I had to tell her, Helen, forgive me. That was really wrong what I just said. I just generalized. I attacked you and all your people. Forgive me. It comes upon me so easily. I just historically told you, Paul was speaking the historical truth. Those that loved their nation, those who loved their holy places, and those who loved their ethnic group more than they loved anything else killed Jesus. I don't want to have any part of that idolatrous worship. And I want to guard it in my own life. Does that make sense? This is really hard stuff. But I want you to know that the persecuted become the persecutors. Did you hear what I just said? The persecuted become the persecutors. And that's what happened in history. And it's one of the biggest things that the evil one has done that's keeping us from being able to reach the world for Christ. And, and as believers today... We want to be really careful to hear God's voice. We want to make sure that our ultimate devotion is to the good news that's God's good news and that we believe that that's the answer of the world and we also aren't filled with fear because like Paul's going to tell you, you might be persecuted, you might go through terrible times of tribulation, but you're going to win in the end. God is going to defend you and he's a great God. You don't have to be afraid. Because fear is what makes us lash out against others and do things that are really harmful. So the very first thing the Apostle Paul is saying is, we've received a divine word, not a human word. The next thing he talks about is that he feels really concerned that his labor among the Thessalonians has been in vain. I want you to capture the passion of the Apostle Paul's heart. He was torn away from these brand new baby believers. And one of the things that's happened in our circles is our leadership leads from a distance. And I've shared with you, like, in my upbringing in evangelicalism, some of the most powerful leaders that I know that have influenced my life, when you're with them one-on-one, -on -one, they don't relate to you personally. I want you to listen really carefully. What built Midlothian Bible Church was we were really brothers and sisters. And that can disappear just like that. That's what the evil one tries to attack. We become just a structure. We become just a teaching center. I want you to listen carefully to the way that the Apostle Paul leads others. I want you to feel his passion because this is what the Spirit of God wants to produce in my heart and what he wants to produce in your heart. Look what he says. He says, but brothers, verse 17, but brothers and sisters, when we were torn away from you, he uses the word, I felt like an orphan when I had to leave you. And it was for a short time, in person, not in thought. So he's saying, you never left my thoughts. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did. Once or twice, I really tried what the Greek literally says, and it's a phrase that means I tried again and again to try to come to you. But the Satan hindered Paul from getting back to the Thessalonians. Notice Paul believes in a real-life, honest-to-goodness, personal adversary. A lot of your religious teachers don't believe that anymore, and Satan loves it. Satan is here this morning. He's trying to keep you from listening to what I just said. 
This morning, as I talked about, do we worship nationalism? Do we worship our culture? Or do we ultimately worship the Lord so that we have a big picture? Some of you are already gone because that's a hard one. And that's the evil one. Like, it's, it's not what I believe. What is Paul really saying about what we should ultimately live for, what we need to ultimately believe in, what we ultimately commit our lives to, what we're about when we worship together as a family of believers? Just like that, Christianity can become Christendom. I want to understand that Spanish Christians, quote, quote, believed with all their heart as they burned a Jew that they were doing God's will. That really happened. There were people that worked in the ovens that believed we are doing God's will because these are the evil people in the world. And that's how bad things can get. And we need to guard our hearts. But Satan gets us to be angry about that, so we don't listen anymore. And we turn away. That's what Paul was concerned about. I'm concerned that the evil one can cause you to start worshiping other things and to be passionate about other things and not really passionate about what Paul's passionate about, passionate about one another. I'm really concerned about my own life. Like, do I really care about you? Or do I get frustrated with you and angry with you? Those are really hard issues, aren't they? And we all wrestle with it. And I want you to see the incredible model that Paul is. He says, I longed for you. This is not dispassionate leadership. This is a guy that's really engaged with others. He cares about them. He says, man, I wanted to get back to you, but the evil one hindered me from doing that. In Corinth, where Paul was, the evil one kept putting pressure upon him, and there was persecution against him, and there was opposition. And Paul's expressing that heart to the Thessalonians. So when he could stand it no longer, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, and we sent Timothy, this would be his sidekick, his emissary, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel. Notice what Timothy is committed to. To strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Notice what Paul is focused on. What he lives for is he wants to find out whether believers, his brothers and sisters, are being strengthened and encouraged in their faith so that no one would be unsettled by their trials. Paul is like a daddy who feels his kids are under threat, and he wants to be really sure that the evil one hasn't been able to rob their faith in Christ and turn them away from what they responded to initially, so that no one would be unsettled in these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. What Paul is saying is when you face trials because of your commitment to Christ, you're on the right team. I want to get that across to you. In this present world, where Jesus is not presently ruling in Jerusalem, you need to put it into the equation. There is going to be times, a lot of times, where I face trials and testing and persecution. And rather than that being a negative thing, the Apostle Paul is saying, that certifies that you really have decided to follow Jesus. One of the great problems in the American culture it's Christianity is just part of our culture. I love the Alamo. I love Sam Houston. I love apple pie. I love ice cream that's homemade in the summer because I'm a Texan. And I love Jesus. And it's all on the same level. And when we go out during the week, we're not any different than any other Texan. Well, we're not going to be persecuted for that. 
But when we really follow the Apostle Paul and we really live for the values that he lived for, then we stand against just the way everything is. And we're going to pay the piper for it. When you're on Jesus' team and you're fighting against the evil one, there's going to be sparks that fly. And I love the Apostle Paul because he's honest. He's saying, when the hard times attack, I told you, that's the way it's going to be as you live in enemy territory. But he goes on and says this. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that you would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when we could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. So he sent Timothy to find out about their faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you. And he's brought good news about your faith and your love. Notice what turns Paul on. Notice what he's excited about. He's excited about people growing in their faith in Christ Jesus. He's excited about people growing in their love for one another. And that's hinting at the big issue I'm going to talk to you about. I say, Paul, what do you live for? Look at what he's going to tell us. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us. Notice their intimacy, their friendship, their love for one another, and that you long to see it. So just like Paul longed to see the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians longed to see him, just as we also longed to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged. Why was he encouraged? Because of your faith. This is the key verse of the whole section. This is the major idea. I say, Paul, what makes you really live? He says, for now, we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking your faith. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? What does Paul live for? If I ask Paul Monday morning, what are you getting up today for? How does he respond? You know how he responds? What I'm totally focused on is I want to see people come to know Jesus. I want to see daddies come to know Jesus and moms come to know Jesus. I want to see them teach their kids about Jesus. Then I want their homes to be filled with the faith in Jesus. Then I want love. Instead of there being hatred and anger and immorality, I want there to be love, real, genuine, caring for one another. How many of you are hungry for these kind of relationships? We're built for this. And that's what the evil one robs away from us. Feel the passion of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul isn't some distant pastor that does things professionally and carries out the professional ministry and keeps himself divorced from people. How many of you see that in this passage? What do you see instead? You see a guy, he gushes love. And that's what the body of Christ is. Whenever the Holy Spirit begins to really move, people become affectionate together. They want to be together. They long to spend time with each other. And that's what the evil one is trying to rob. And one of my prayers this morning, I just say, Dave, how can I really live? You need to have the purpose of your life. What brings me joy is to find out that others have believed in Jesus. 
that even in spite of persecution, they're growing in Jesus. And their love for Jesus and their love for one another is turning things around. You say, Dave, what's the greatest thing I can do for the United States of America? You know what the greatest thing you can do is? Be filled with faith and love for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And love for fellow believers. But Paul also talked about your love for everyone. When believers live in love with Jesus and in love with the body of Christ and then in love with unbelievers, tremendous movements have taken place. So what I want you to think of is, how do I believe I can, I can produce change? What, I, what do I believe can produce transformation? What produces joy in my life? And it all begins in our own hearts, whether today I'm living for, like, do I live for? Do I live for seeing you come to know Jesus, helping you to become faithful in your commitment to Christ, growing in your love, in your marriages, in your families, among fellow believers, and seeing that love produce actions that really touch lives? Do I live for that? Is that what produces joy in my life? Or do I live for other things? Do I live for recognition? You see, that's what I wrestle with. As I read the Apostle Paul this morning, he convicts me. For example, in my own life, as I look back over my ministry, it used to be that Dallas Seminary, for example, would say, hey, we want to have Dave come because he just wrote the book and he's the young guy. Now somebody else goes and does that. In my own life, the way this really hits home, if I'm living for my recognition, I'm being really honest with you. If I live for my own recognition, my own prestige, my own acceptance, then I'm discouraged. And I'm not full of joy. And I'm really living just from my pride. But if I'm like Paul, and I'm really focused, all I really care about is, are you growing in your faith? Are you really growing in your love? Are you really anticipating Jesus coming back? You can forget all about me. Because I'm not the important one. Jesus is. Does that make sense? I want you as daddies and moms, I want you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is incredibly liberating to live just to see the effect of Jesus in other people's lives and to be part of what he's doing. Paul says, I really live because I got a report that I was so scared that when I had to be ripped away from Thessalonica that all those brand new baby believers would have disappeared, that Satan would have won. Timothy comes back and says, no, Paul. They love you as much as you love them. They can hardly wait for you to be together with them again. They want you to come and help their faith to increase. And how did Paul respond? He says, that's what makes me really live. What makes you really live? Then he closes with a prayer. Look what it says. It says, now may, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul just busts spontaneously into prayer so often. He said, may he clear the way for me to come to you. So Paul is anxiously asking the Lord to help him to return so he can be face to face with these dear brothers and sisters in Christ. May the Lord make your, notice his prayer, may the Lord make your love increase. May he make it overflow for each other 
and for everyone else. I want us to make that our prayer. May God the Father, through the power of His Son, cause our love for one another to increase for one another and for everyone. May He strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless, that you might be holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with His holy ones. I want you, if the ABC News report interviews you, and you're on the beach, and you're at an empty marina, I want you to say, these empty slips make me really cry. Because one of the greatest joys of my life was to be able to be here in the Gulf. But I want you to know that when my dreams don't come true, that I have a dream that lasts forever and ever. That's what Colt McCoy, you might not like the UT, you don't have to, but you need to love your brother in Christ. Because in the national championship that he lived for from the time he was a little boy, his dad prepared him for that moment. He worked hour after hour after hour in the first few minutes of the game against Alabama. A big, powerful, all-American lineman just crushed into the turf, and he was out of the game. And his dream to lead Texas to the national championship was over. When they interviewed him at the end of the game, did he say, it's the end. I guess I have to go into my garage. My dream is crashed. His greatest, greatest example was all during the game with his arm in a sling. He helped a young freshman quarterback play the game that he was supposed to play. That's love. That's what produces teams. And then he told the national reporters, I wanted to play this game more than anything else, but I want you to know that this isn't my life. And he told about his savior. He's a West Texas country boy who never got over the wonder that Jesus and our friendships and being part of the body of Christ is even better, a bigger dream than being the national champion. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus is calling us to through the Apostle Paul. 